Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling themes and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week we're exploring the theme of race in Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. To start, we have a quote from Avatar Book 3, the episode of The Puppet Master. This is a conversation that Team Avatar has with Hama, the suspicious person who they've been investigating, as she reveals who she is to Katara. You're from the Southern Water Tribe? Just like you. How did you know? I heard you talking around your campfire. But why didn't you tell us? I wanted to surprise you. I bought all this food today so I could fix you a big Water Tribe dinner. Of course, I can't get all the ingredients I need here, but ocean kumquats are a lot like sea prunes if you stew them long enough. I knew I felt a bond with you right away. Until you don't, Qatar. <laughs> or then she really feels a bond yeah, with exactly. her later. When they're the only two bloodbenders in the world at that. Yeah, that we know of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting episode. I mean, not only because you get the introduction of bloodbending, but because it's the first time, besides people that they already knew from the Southern Water Tribe, like Baku, that they met someone that they had some connection with based off of culture based off of their ethnic identity and Mm -hmm. things that were precious to them like Sokka's boomerang or Katara's necklace and then you have Hama who's kept this comb from her home keeping it completely secret because she's not supposed to have survived and she's living in the Fire Nation but they all have something from part of their identity that is special to them, even if the people around them that, I mean, maybe Hama doesn't have any friends, but <laughs> um, Katara and Sokka, you know, even though they have Aang, they have a Toph, that doesn't mean they, they understand all of these different things about their culture and, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, those shared cultural touchstones of being excited about a food that they haven't had mm-hmm. in a long time. Yeah, and like... The fact that Katara felt a bond with her even before she knew, that makes a lot of sense to me. I know different times throughout my life, I've gravitated towards people who have Asian ancestry, Mm -hmm. um, whether at school or just randomly (laughs) coming across people that, yeah, just there's some things that you don't have to speak, you don't have to explain that you can relate to yeah it, it's a it's a different kind of bond than you would have with people outside of that ethnic identity totally i also think this quote is is good because it illustrates some of the theoretical aspects of race and ethnicity and culture which are mm-hmm. of course all different things that mm-hmm. often intersect but not always and how some of our conceptions of those things do and do not translate into the world of Avatar. Mm -hmm. Because race, as it's seen in at least our society in the United States and in the West, is something that typically is more phenotypical. It's it's physical characteristics. That's certainly how it was created. That was the intention behind it. Exactly. Though not entirely, because... There was things like the one drop rule that said that as long as you had one drop Mm. of black African blood in you, then you were considered non-white. And so, you know, even those things were not always concrete. And race as a social construct is, is always changing. But here, 
Hama and Katara and Sokka can't recognize each other just by sight as someone from the Water Tribe. And all of them are essentially in disguise in the Fire Nation at this point. And so, you know, brings up ideas of passing, it brings up ideas of being a minority, which I think is actually one of the few times that we do see some of the issues that come with race in our society being represented in Avatar. But we also see, yeah, these disconnects from what race means, because if they are able to pass in such a way, we can't exactly talk about race the same way as for a society like ours where race was constructed as a way of differentiating people based off the way they look. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think all of these are probably things we'll, we'll chew a lot on as we talk today. But this is a good kind of example of, yeah, some of those connections and disconnections. Yeah, totally. So why don't we get into the rest of our discussion? What character did you bring to talk about today? Uh, I want to talk about Sokka. Okay. Because I think he is the person who tends to have most cultural pride or at least exhibit most cultural Mm -hmm. pride water tribe exactly (laughs) (laughs) but him and katara certainly wear their water tribe garb for the first two seasons until they're undercover in the fire nation but i think that yeah he continues to use traditional weapons like you mentioned like his boomerang he does the war paint he does the war paint exactly he i think is most excited to see his dad again and to be a water tribe warrior. When they reunite with their father, he's the one who feels compelled to do this coming of age boat Mm -hmm. course and really have that experience because it's so tied to their culture. He's the one who, even before they leave, is, you know, trying to defend their home and trying to train the younger children in the ways that he learned how to be a warrior to the limited extent that he was able to at that age. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I think that he is just a good example of how culture can be a point of pride for people and how it can, especially as you travel into other cultures, be a way for you to, you know, maintain individuality and to see the world and to identify yourself in really crucial ways. But I think he's also the character of the the core cast who is probably the closest to like a racial determinist, someone who sees people identified by their race um, Mm. because he's the one who is last to come around to the idea that Fire Nation people aren't just enemies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Aren't just. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Aang obviously has the dance. Katara is the painted lady, and Sokka, mm-hmm. I think, is still always focused on the, the war effort more than anything. And Toph just doesn't care. Exactly. People are people, and if she <laughs> will tolerate them, she'll tolerate them regardless of where they're from. Exactly. I mean, obviously, she was the first to be like, maybe we should listen to Zuko, you know? Mm-hmm. True, true. But yeah, so when I was thinking about, yeah, race in and culture in Avatar, honestly, the image of him donning his face paint his war paint was the first image that came to my mind Mm. of one of the main characters really doing something that was intentionally a way of connecting with and exemplifying their culture and what that culture means to them Mm -hmm. because that that can be you know if it's anything like often the war paints and, and things that exist uh in cultures in our society it can be, you know, almost a sacred practice, uh, a ritualistic practice. 
that have specific meanings and everything. There are reasons why they're putting paint in certain areas of their face, their body, or whatnot. Exactly. And very culturally specific reasons Mm -hmm. for that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, after hearing you talking about, like, him being the last person to really start to get over seeing Fire Nation people in this, like, very biased, monolithic Mm -hmm. sort of way, I think that that actually carries through throughout the series because he is the person of any of the characters, I think, that has more intentional cultural exchange moments, Mm. like with Suki and the Kyoshi Warriors. That's a good point. Him, obviously, having his own patriarchal, sexist problems there, but part of it is, like, learning a new way to do something. And then when he gets master pian dao to teach him sword fighting that's a fire nation practice you Mm -hmm. know um at least however they do that one specifically yeah i think he needs those moments probably more than some of the other characters do to be able to start to not see the same stereotypes or not to just make kind of ethnocentric judgments on people or practices yeah that's a really good point Well, what plot did you want to talk about today? So mine isn't exactly a plot as much as it is about the world building of The Last Airbender and looking at some of the things that differentiate the four nations from each other because the creators took a lot from Chinese culture, Japanese culture, Tibetan culture, Inuit culture, and I assume some other East Asian, Southeast Asian influences as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And you see that also in the bending styles. Each nation's bending is based off of a different sort of martial arts. So I think that that's showing a bit of uniqueness Mm. based off of where you're growing up and how things are just developed differently. Like there's going to be some similar threads, but the way and the style of the movements and the forms and stuff are are quite different, which I didn't even know about until watching kind of behind the creation of the series. And I was like, oh, that's really awesome that they were intentional about that. Mm-hmm. Not just like mixing all these different types of martial arts styles into one big pile of confusion for anybody who actually knows martial arts Mm -hmm. and i think other things that kind of bring out some ethnic differences within the world of avatar is we were mentioning before like the food those sea prunes and things like that that are very specific to where you are. And then the clothing styles are quite different, not just because of the colors. <laughs> the colors help, yes. <laughs> which is a little too on the <laughs> I only dress in red, white, and blue. <laughs> Actually, I purposefully don't dress in red, white, and blue. <laughs> Fourth of July, wear black. <laughs> But um, they do have different styles to it. And because they have different needs for the different environments Mm. they're in. The water tribes on both poles, they use a lot of fur. Like they need to be warmer because they are living in snow. Versus the air nomads, they have a lot more open, exposed skin and things like that. And hairstyles, that's obviously quite different as well. I think it's 
it's a cool world building thing. And I mean, because it translates to our world, these ethnic and cultural differences and practices um, and styles are significantly influenced by geographical traits. Even when you get into the Earth Kingdom, which is huge, and which I really appreciate, there are various ethnic groups and cultural groups within the Earth Kingdom. It's just not one monolithic thing. So you have the Swamp Benders, and they have a very different style and a very different accent. Mm -hmm. um, and definitely different clothing. <laughs> yes. And different philosophy. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Desert Sandbenders, and their dress and everything is completely different based off of their needs for how to cover their body and not be exposed to elements and things like that. And I think you start to get some phenotypical traits in there sometimes as well, like the sandbenders and the people living in the desert, they had more Western Asian traits mm. with larger beards and um, just different features. And then with the water tribes, you also see a slightly darker skin color. So, yeah, I, I just kind of appreciate that they did put different layers of things in there, even though it's just a kid's show and, like, they don't go into it a lot. Of course, of course, I would love if they went into it more. Yeah. But at least having variations and having it not too simplified. And I also appreciate that there's difference based off of development and wealth mm -hmm. as well. So you can see a variety in styles of clothing and things like that in Ba Sing Se, depending on where you're living in Ba Sing Se, which is also very true. You know, if you look at ancient Japanese clothing styles or eating habits, they're going to vary based off of if you're in the imperial family or if you're a rice farmer. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that there's some difference there too. Not to mention, as you were mentioning before, where you live. Mm -hmm. Because you know, I'll, I'll use the indigenous people of the Los Angeles region, uh, the Tongva, as an example. The Tongva who lived on the coasts and on the islands were fishers. They would focus on fishing, abalone, you know, other kinds of things there. Whereas those who are living in the mountains or in the prairies would be much more hunting deer and rabbit and, you know, using different kinds of tools and probably having different kinds of dresses. And those people would trade with one another, but just living that far apart still made it so that they had very different lifestyles in the day to day. So yeah, I think that that, that is very, very true. And I mean, I think about, for example, that town uh, in the, the Painted Lady episode, where they are living on the water, and so they eat a lot of fish. And so how that's connected to, yeah, the their environments and the resources that are there and how that might affect culture and things like that. Mm -hmm. and I wonder now, actually, I'm thinking, I wonder if Katara was particularly sympathetic to their plight because they were a water-focused community within the Fire Nation. Mm-hmm. Seeing the polluted water is like a really acute affront to her experience of life. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I never thought of that before, but. Yeah. Hmm. I also think it's interesting because even how the different bending types came about were based off of the animals that lived in certain regions. Mm. And that's really cool too, because a lot of religious practices, uh, conceptualizations of 
creation, of gods, just having different meanings tied to different animals and things like that. That's super embedded in so many cultures around the world. Yeah, I think that's really interesting as well. But should we move into our compelling questions? Sure. What do you have for me? Well, you already touched on this. Oops. Stealing all of my discussion points, but I was wondering whether you think the swamp and sandbenders are different races than other water and earthbenders, respectively. Yeah, I mean, from my memory, I think that the swamp benders, their skin was slightly lighter than the northern and southern water tribes, but that doesn't mean that they can't be of the same race, because mm-hmm. obviously, and that could be more just based off of environment. So maybe they get less sunlight. Exactly. So it could be that a long, long time ago, people migrated. They're like, this is too cold. We don't like it. We're leaving. <laughs> because it was so long ago that they didn't have any memory of each other. Yeah. So maybe it could have started that way, but did they not marry other Earth Nation people? And, you know, was there not Hoppa Swamp Benders <laughs> to begin with? <laughs> and then, you know, how much does that change over time? It kind of depends on how long ago it was. But I would say the desert people, not just the Sandbenders, but some of the other people like that really annoying Earth Nation commander or general or Mm. whatever who tried to force Aang into the Avatar state. He had like this huge bushy beard. That is, I think, not the same race as like Toph's family. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I think that there probably are some different, definitely ethnicities, but I I would guess races there as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know, there there are certainly just genetic factors that change over time as you adapt to your environment that mm-hmm. might make you, yeah, lighter or darker skinned, more or less hairy, taller, shorter. But you also hit on the, the cultural factors of if these swamp benders, for example, have been isolated from other waterbenders for so long that their history, their culture, their traditions have all separated does that make them part of the same community, you know, and to what extent? And we don't see Katara saying something like she says to Hama to the swamp benders. Mm-hmm. She doesn't say there's a connection there. She's just like, oh, you're water benders. This is maybe an interesting thing that you're doing with your water bending by bending the water in the vines. But yeah, you you are not my people in the same way that Hama, mm-hmm. I think she has. We don't example. eat gator. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I think that that it's a really interesting example. The sandbenders then, you know, they're less removed. They're not, you know, as far away from the poles as the swamps are. Um, They're surrounded. Isolated. Exactly. But they developed new traditions that were based off that environment and and new bending styles and clothing that they they would wear to be more effective in that environment and things like that, which I think are are really, really cool, but I wonder, yeah, how, to what extent that was a recent thing, an ongoing thing, how much contact there still remains. It looked like when they were in the town, in the oasis, there were still postings and things like that from the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So they seem also more connected to the rest of the world than the swamp benders do. Yeah. So yeah, I think that those two groups in particular represent very interesting examples of how culture and ethnicity and race you know as we've been mentioning um and community 
can operate and, and where that identity comes from. I think that that for me becomes one of the most telling things is that the Swampbenders call themselves Swampbenders, not Waterbenders. Mm -hmm. The Sandbenders call themselves Sandbenders, not Earthbenders. And yeah. we don't really see that anywhere else. And so I think if, if you're building your community and your community's identity around that type of thing, it starts to be, yeah, you know, you, you might have certain characteristics or even a shared history with another group, but I would interpret that as they consider themselves their own group at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and then it gets really interesting when you have mixing of different races because you have things like lava bending mm. right and that this would be more right eh, it, again it gets very complicated mm -hmm. but it, it's a genetic thing as far as we know because bolin had both a earth nation parent and a fire nation parent so then he has some traits coming down from both that allow him to be able to bend in a different way than somebody who only had two mm -hmm. earthbending parents. But a lot of that is assumptions because they don't yeah. explicitly engage with it. It's true. And then, you know, once the spirit world or whatever chooses that things need to be evened out again mm -hmm. or whatnot, just gives airbending to people who are not air nomads. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's that's its own <laughs> that's bucket its of own worms. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so why don't you ask me your question? Okay, so I wanted to just have a discussion kind of about representation, but also cultural appropriation mm. within the animated series and live action series. Obviously, we haven't seen the new Netflix live action one yet, but some of the casting has been announced. I haven't seen, but I know some of the terrible things that they did with the M. Night Shyamalan oh, yeah. movie. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just kind of wondering about some of your thoughts in regard to the show, how it's created, the representation it gives, but also the appropriation it engages in. What are thoughts? That's a really, really important conversation to have. And Avatar really does fit in this very odd space because it is in many ways appropriative. It is a way of taking these currents that in the early 2000s were, were on the rise. I, I happen to be reading a book right now called Manga in America, which is about basically production of English language manga and how the author considers that a, a transnational current where it, it's not just Japanese things are then translated into English, but there is a whole industry built around it that ultimately results in the Americanization of mm -hmm. manga. And the biggest time period that started happening was in the early 2000s. And I think over that decade, manga sales in the United States doubled. And so, yeah, this is a time period in which East Asian art forms, uh, in particular Japanese art forms, so I think you know, that kind of extends to other other locations as well, started becoming more popular and anime became an extremely popular art form. So so I, I remember when, when Avatar first came out, there were conversations about how it was like a, an American anime because it had a different art form than most American cartoons had and it clearly touched on so many of those elements. But yeah, it had American white creators mm -hmm. involved and... Uh, yeah, they, they got martial artists to, you know, help them ensure that, that was the case. But I don't know if they're Asian martial artists or, or Japanese or Chinese martial artists or people from those communities. And 
I think it was animated by a Korean studio. I believe so, yeah. So there's all these interlocking processes involved Mm -hmm. here that I think ultimately there are elements of these other cultures that are put into a show that is warped for an American audience. Mm -hmm. Um, And even beyond that, when it goes to other audiences around the world and becomes popular that way, it is then broadcasting the American version of those cultures to those other places (laughs) around the world. Totally. And by mashing so many different cultures up, it's hard because because it's a fantasy world, Mm -hmm. it's not the same exactly of Orientalism, but it sort of is a little bit too, you know? Yeah, and I think that's why it's it's more appropriative because it is being like, ooh, these are some really interesting elements of that culture. Ooh, that architecture is cool. Ooh, this fashion is cool, you know. Let me use that when I create my original world. And I think that there is a very large component of that that is appreciation. That, you know, mm-hmm. oftentimes appropriation and appreciation are kind of shown as being conflicting or contrasting ideas when I think more often they are overlapping and you have to just look at in particular the systemic ways in which appropriation becomes problematic even if it is appreciative where funds and notoriety and and power hard or soft goes to those who are appropriating rather than those original creators. I mean yeah it gets complicated because it's still even when it's appreciation people are only appreciating certain things Mm -hmm. uh, while still being okay with oppression in other forms or not realizing or caring enough about to be involved in fighting those oppressions for the same people that they appreciate certain, oh, this looks cool from their culture, you know? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But also it's, it's interesting because I know the Fire Nation actually was a little more based on some Japanese cultural things. And then they were like, actually, we need to change this and meld it more with some other Chinese cultural elements because they didn't want it to be like, and the Japanese people are the villains of the series. Like, you can't have that either. Yeah. So I, I at least appreciate that consideration. But yeah, it, it just it gets really complicated. It really does. <laughs> and then as, as you know, we go into, yeah, the, the casting decisions, I think that gets even more complicated because, yeah, for the original show both shows the cast was not culturally represented mm-hmm. most of the voice actors weren't asian exactly yeah yeah so you know i think that those are important elements uh you, you mentioned the emmett Shyamalan movie <laughs> and i think that one's even more interesting because they turned the fire nation into south asian <laughs> you can't just do that like, not that there aren't some threads of similarity through of different Asian cultures, but like, no. But it's, it was it's, clearly Chinese and Japanese inspired. It's so fascinating because the rest of the world is white. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. But this one nation it becomes South Asian, and M. Night Shyamalan is South Asian, and he's making the villain South Asian. And it's just, it's its, oh, uh, no. its own really weird aspect of it so for the new live action series i know we've talked a lot about the casting decisions there and and what their their things are i know you have a lot to say there so i'm gonna i'm gonna (laughs) leave give you the floor in this case well yeah i'm they've announced a lot of the main characters and their casting and for the four kids 
Zuko's casting, great. I, I am glad that they got some indigenous young actors for Katara and Sokka. It gets a little difficult, I think, with indigenous actors because there's so many different indigenous peoples. So it's like, technically, should they just be coming from like Inuit and some other people groups that are around snow-based environments, you mm -hmm. know? Yes, but do you have the ability to cast that way? probably depends and obviously whoever's cast is gonna have to move to wherever they're filming you know and all of that so it it gets quite complicated yeah i think absolutely as much as possible you should cast within the group not just like oh well they're indigenous but you know there's great variants in there it's their own people groups and then you have ang who is half filipino half white you know, I'm not totally sure what I feel about that. I think I do feel like he should be full Asian as the central character of this show. Again, if you can get someone who was Tibetan, like, yes. But also knowing that that might not be totally available. But it, it gets complicated because there's so many different factors. It's not only that the person has to be able to act they have to be able to kind of embody the character well. So there's mm -hmm. just some personal attributes of their personality, of their voice, of their style of doing things. They also have to be able to do some amount of martial arts and physically demanding things. And they also have to have chemistry with the other people you're casting. There are so many different factors. So I'm not like really angry about it or anything, but... It's just, yeah, I think it gets complicated. I'm, I'm glad that within those four, they all are at least part what the characters are, are meant to be. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I personally, as somebody who's half Japanese, I would never want to play a character that was full Japanese because that is not my experience. But also the kid who's going to be playing Aang, I think does look more Asian than I do. So there's aspects there as well. Yeah, it, it's hard because, you know, talking about the difference between ethnicity and race, mm -hmm. I think that the Netflix cast is mostly trying to hit on the racial mm -hmm. component, check the racial boxes more than anything else. Like you mentioned with indigenous cultures, yeah. those are so wide ranging. So are East Asian cultures. And <laughs> yeah. so having a Korean or Chinese actor play a culture that is modeled after Japan is racially, yeah, they're Asian, they're East Asian, but mm -hmm. ethnically, culturally, they're very different. But yeah. then, you know, one of the goals of representation, particularly for live action television, is for people to be able to see themselves. And, mm -hmm. you know, actors, unless they're doing that research, they don't come with the necessarily their ethnic or cultural component as they're playing a part. So, so there, there's complications there as well. Yeah, because the animated show took from real cultures in our <laughs> world, but the Avatar world is not the same racial or cultural groups that we have in our world. Yeah. But I would say, though, that no one yet has been announced who is of Japanese ancestry in the casting of the Netflix show. And if no significant character is Japanese, <laughs> I am gonna throw some tables. Like, don't you dare tank from parts of my culture and then don't cast anyone from my culture to represent on screen. Like, I'm 
super glad. Great. They have some Korean, they have some Chinese actors in there as well. I would absolutely love to see some Southeast Asians in there too, but like you need some Japanese actors because you have heavily borrowed from that culture. So absolutely do it. Let's do Suki. <laughs> Let's do Kyoshi. <laughs> Let's listen to the sounds of some of these names and, you know, try to cast responsibly or else I'm going to have a fit. <laughs> I'm already starting to have. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. And, and I think that that kind of also hints at one of the other problems that this is coming at, which is that they're also trying to cast actors who bring their own kind of notoriety. Um, mm -hmm. who are going to make headlines and who are going to maybe get people to watch or, or whatever it might be. I think a really great example of this is Paul Sun-Hyung Lee as Uncle Iroh, who, you know, was one of the main characters in Kim's Convenience, a very long-running show. And so I know that of all of the casting announcements, that's the one that I saw most engaged with. But, you know, was he cast because he's the only notable Asian actor in that age range and of that body type, mm -hmm. you know? Who also can, like, do comedy, but yeah. Yeah, you know, because outside of all the things that you were talking about, there's also, yeah, that component of who they can get that already has some sort of name or some sort of recognition mm -hmm. um, that Netflix in particular wants. And and for me, that leads to, to one of the biggest issues, I think, in any of these conversations, which is that at the end of the day, the creators who are American, and now Netflix, which is an American-owned company, are the ones who are going to be gaining the vast majority of profits from mm -hmm. this type of show. And so... Casting, I think, is good not only for representation, but it also means that some of the people who are going to be making money off of this come from those communities, mm -hmm. you know, because money is inherently tied to appropriation. I don't know a lot of the writers and producers of the Netflix show specifically are Asian Americans. Which is great. But yeah, it, it, you know, it, it, I think, brings up larger questions that don't have clear answers because, you know, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Uh because this is ultimately a capitalistic enterprise, it comes with these appropriative and commodifying aspects that, you know, there's no way around. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think also on this topic, we have seen a change since the show first came out. For example, Raya and the Last Dragon. Mm -hmm. Almost all, or maybe all, the voice actors for that movie were of Asian descent. Mm -hmm. So maybe now they would be more intentional about casting for voice acting. But back when it first came out, that wasn't as big of a priority. Not to, to say that they shouldn't have done it. Of course they should have. But we have thankfully started to enter a new place in media where some of that is being more intentionally done mm -hmm. um which is good and it gets difficult because would avatar the last airbender ever have been made if it wasn't two white creators probably this... not in 2004 whenever it was made exactly yeah. and then that's a whole generation of asian american kids growing up and not seeing anything that they could relate to or seeing themselves represented as superheroes as just 
kids you know it's like this was their whole world it's not like oh there were a few characters in a white world this was the entire world and you know i know that that has been so significant for a lot of people so it's difficult because i think having that representation there at a time when maybe it wouldn't have been done any other way i think has had a lot of positive effects totally hashtag it's complicated it's complicated (laughs) it very much is But why don't we move into our missed opportunities? Sure. Mine is talking about appropriation. Oh, okay. uh, Is on the Air Acolytes. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These are the people who, in the TV series, they're only introduced to us in The Legend of Korra. But these are the people who live on Air Temple Island but are not part of the airbending family. They're Um, not benders themselves. Exactly. We see them dressed in traditional air nomad clothing. You know, they eat that kind of food. They all seem to be working in collaboration on the farming and cooking and cleaning of the island. But we know that because Aang was the only surviving airbender, that they are not racially airbenders. Mm -hmm. And in the comics, we see that explored a little bit more about, you know, how the air acolytes kind of came to be. I think that those are interesting conversations, but I certainly would have liked to have that more explicitly engaged with of how that kind of appropriation and adoption of what at that point was almost a dead culture was borne out and what it was like for those people. We, we don't really see any of them have any real conversation with even Tenzin or his family. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's some complicated conversations that could be had within the show to engage with all of that and then it gets even more complicated when yeah new airbenders come out mm-hmm. and they are not culturally or ethnically or racially airbenders but now they have one of in this world the defining characteristics of what makes you an airbender and part of their training is incorporating these traditional aspects to it but not you know there's also changes that occur and so now there are three different camps of Tent and his family who are the last airbenders there are the air acolytes there are these new airbenders so yeah i I think that that there could be some other some greater exploration there particularly in the show itself since a much larger audience watches the show than reads the comics yeah i mean it would be great with the new avatar studios if they did explore some of those things I really hope they do because, yeah, that was one of my favorite things in the comics, the Promise Mm -hmm. series, that they did address to some degree. Aang getting upset with people appropriating his people's culture as a fan of him and and witches. Yeah, I, I love that they put that in there. Me too. And even then, I would have loved to see a little bit more of what it's still like for him to have to teach and and build these kinds of communities Mm -hmm. and it's important to know that at least the people when he did get upset they were like oh no we didn't realize this was offensive we're sorry if only that would happen in our world true true (laughs) well what is your missed opportunity so mine is just that i kind of wish in the show we had seen more prejudices and racisms not because it's great but because that's real there are some major prejudices between asian countries so yeah i just think it would have been a more layered world and a lot of good hopefully teachable moments 
for the the young people watching this we we get it here or there but not significantly and i think that that is something that they do bring out in the comics a little bit more Mm -hmm. with these derogatory slangs for different people groups some people call earthbenders dirt people water tribe people snow savages right and firebenders ash makers you know so i think having that in there i was like oh yes like adding that the complications of different people with different cultures interacting together, particularly in the aftermath of a time that was so tumultuous, you know, with war and imperialism, trying to suppress cultural elements. Yeah, that that definitely added a level of realness to the world that I would really love to see in either series of Avatar. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's hard too because the conceptions of what race is are so different within East Asian societies as they are Mm -hmm. in the United States. You know, I I lived short term in Japan, so I got a small taste of that kind of aspect. But even that is so much more complicated than I could understand within the year that I was living there. And that's only one country in a very, very diverse region. So, you know, race is a social construct, as, as has been said. And that is going to be a different construct in different societies. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that's a really good point. But yeah. on that happy note, why don't we move into our takeaways? What sure. are you taking away? I think my biggest takeaway is I want to start looking at Avatar and the currents of Avatar through a lens of indigeneity mm. um, to the extent that I can as a non-indigenous person. I think that there are currents that can go along with it, particularly in Korra. Korra, as we've talked about a lot in other episodes, has a more industrialized or industrializing setting to it. Mm -hmm. And you can't have that represented without it being a connection to forced industrialization and resource exploitation and oftentimes extermination of indigenous peoples around the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That came alongside the building of railroads and new mining practices and all these other elements that were essential to industrialization. So yeah, I think I'd like to look at it more through that lens, particularly also looking at like the spirits and seeing if the spirits are in some ways a metaphorical stand-in for a kind of indigeneity or a indigenous trope even Mm -hmm. of being connected to the land Um, Yeah, just something that I'd like to not only think about myself, but also maybe read into Indigenous perspectives on the show. Yeah, that would be really interesting, really fascinating. What about you? What's your takeaway? I think my takeaway is Avatar has this really weird place in my heart and mind and life because I love it so much, even while seeing some of the problems of appropriation Mm -hmm. but also loving the representation that is becoming more common when i was a kid growing up i either watched anime or there was nothing for me that i could see anything one even even with anime (laughs) they're not necessarily drawn to look japanese Mm -hmm. It, it has its own very specific style And so knowing the power that that has for young people to to be able to see that. 
I got so excited about Big Hero 6 when that Pixar movie came Mm. out because it was the first time ever where a half-Japanese, half-white character in California. Yeah. (laughs) Granted, it was a boy. Granted, they were living in... San Francisco. San Francisco. And a genius boy. (laughs) There's still things that I didn't relate to. But... That was the closest that I had ever experienced mm. to feeling represented. Um, and I didn't have that until I was like in my 20s. So knowing that there's so much power that comes with and there there's so many positive things that come with Avatar that kids got to grow up with that. Seeing themselves finally in a really great show. But also being like, ah, you know, (laughs) about other things, but also like loving so many of the messages, you know. So it's just, it's a very complicated thing. And I I still love the show. Like, it's the only (laughs) thing of just like clear elements of appropriation happening that like I still love. Other things I'm so much more critical of. Not that I'm not critical of this, but like I still have overwhelmingly positive feelings towards and basically mostly just positive feelings towards (laughs) which is really interesting and clearly it's a special show if it would do that even when normally i'm just like ugh, stop about all of these things not not to say that we should just give it a pass which i think after this conversation is clear that we aren't yeah yeah but um yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad Avatar exists and I'm glad that they're continuing to do things with it. And I hope as time goes on, because it, it has been so successful, because it is such a great story with great messages, they'll continue to do stuff with it and do it better and better and better. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your complicated feelings and <laughs> oh, your you're perspective welcome, on, on Avatar. <laughs> okay. What will we be doing next on the podcast? So next week, we are going to be doing a special episode requested by one of our patrons on The Umbrella Academy, which is a Netflix original show based on comics, but we haven't actually read the comics, but we are going to be talking about the first two seasons of the show. Yeah, if you haven't watched it yet, go do that. It's, it's honestly not that long. It's not that many episodes per season. and They're there real some, good. Yeah, there are some delightful characters. And we actually kind of like season two better, Mm -hmm. which is rare. So go do that. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. Find links to our social media and our website in the episode description. Or you can join us at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines if you want to become a supporter of the podcast. One of the best ways to help us is to share the podcast with a friend. So if you love Avatar as much as we do, or you also have complicated feelings about the show, you can share the podcast with a friend, or you can leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find us. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out!